Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 329. So now in chapter 25, the Alter Rebbe is coming to the original verse, which um, he started out the Tanya, and that is the verse from Deuteronomy that Moshe tells the Jewish people that to be Jewish is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. It's something that's uh, doable, accessible, not only to act like a Jew and to speak like a Jew and to think like a Jew, but even bilvavcha, to do it with feeling, heartfelt. And the question that he asked is that it's obviously not so. We know how naturally and instinctively it is so difficult to do the right thing. What a struggle it is, what a sacrifice, what a heroic effort to always do the right thing. And how can Moshe say that, oh, it's, it's natural, it's doable. So first he tried to explain that Moshe is referring to a Jew's ability to meditate and to reflect and to concentrate, focus and concentrate your mind on godliness. And by focusing your mind on godliness and concentrating on godliness, you can not only decide to act like a Jew, but in a certain sense, the mind over matter, your mind controls your heart. In a certain sense, you can even develop a certain feeling. You can even have a feeling towards, towards acting like a Yid and, and doing the right thing. But then, in chapter 18, he started explaining it in a, in a new way, in a new light. He sheds new light on the meaning of this verse by explaining that even someone who doesn't have a mind, who doesn't have the concentration, doesn't have the energy to concentrate, how many people have the, the, the peace of mind to be able first to study? and to study thoroughly, and then to meditate, and then to focus, and to concentrate, until you make a decision that I want to lead a Jewish life, and until you evoke a certain feeling, a certain passion towards Judaism. And yet the verse is speaking to each and every Jew throughout all the generations, that each and every Jew, without exception, has the ability to lead a Jewish life, and to do it with feeling. So in chapter 18 he began explaining that... A Jew has a natural, inherent love to God. It's not a love that you have to invent or create. It's not like religion or mysticism. That's something that's man-made, something you have to create. It's not something that's natural, instinctive. But every Jew is born with a Jewish soul. And what makes us Jewish is that we have a Jewish soul, we have a natural, instinctive love for God. Deep down, every single Jew which means that they have this faith, this innate, inherent faith. It's not a faith that you have to create. It's not man-made. It's innate, it's inherent. You're born with it. All you have to do is to reveal. Now, to reveal is much easier than to create. So even someone who doesn't have a mind, all you have to do is to reveal that faith. And we see it. And in the moment of truth, this faith emerges. When push comes to shove, when push comes to shove, in the moment of truth, when a Jew is pushed against the wall, are you going to deny your Jewishness? Are you going to deny your connection to God? A Jew would rather give up his life than deny his Jewishness. And this is across the board. It's a natural, instinctive response. It's not something that comes, it's premeditated. It's a decision you have to make. It's almost as if you have no choice. It's, it's something inside of you just takes over. Some deep, deep depth that we all have carry with inside of us, but it's just out of our ordinary frame of reference, out of our ordinary consciousness. But in the moment of truth, this, it bubbles to the surface. It emerges and with such clarity and such power and such force, such depth, that it just takes over. And suddenly... Even the most light-headed Jew or the Jew doesn't take himself seriously, doesn't take his Jewishness seriously. In the moment of truth, would make the ultimate sacrifice, give up everything, just for the sake of to remain connected with God and to remain a Jew. So we see that deep in the moment of truth, we know for a fact that deep down, 
This is the most important thing for you to know. Okay. So that explains how a Jew is ready to sacrifice his life in a moment of truth. When he has to make a choice. Are you going to bow down to the idol? Are you going to deny your Jewishness or not? But how does this explain what Moshe is saying? That to lead a Jewish lifestyle, a total, complete Jewish lifestyle, 613 mitzvot, that we should act Jewish consistently, 24-7, and always speak Jewish and think Jewish 24-7. Just because we have this innate, inherent love for God and this fear of being disconnected from God, which emerges in the moment of truth, how does that help us lead our daily lives and to make a decision to, to be Jewish? And he explained, because the truth is that what is the deeper meaning of belief in God or the belief in the unity of God? The deeper meaning is not only that God creates the world and that God continuously creates the world and He's in charge of the world, But on a deeper level, it means that there's no other reality but God. What is the definition of idolatry, the opposite of belief in God? The belief in the unity of God. The opposite is idolatry is if you believe that there is an independent existence besides God, outside of God. Therefore, any time you do a mitzvah, any mitzvah, any of the 613 mitzvahs, even the rabbinic mitzvah, even a Jewish custom, Anytime you're doing the will of God, it all boils down to, to a basic question. Am I connected? Am I not connected? Whenever I fulfill the will of God, and the will of God, it doesn't matter to me whether the will of God is revealed through a biblical mitzvah, rabbinic mitzvah, Jewish custom. Once I know that this is what God wants of me, then by doing the mitzvah, I'm connected. The details don't matter. Any mitzvah, and all mitzvot, by doing a mitzvah, I'm connected. And vice versa. Any transgression, any prohibition, minor, major, biblical, rabbinic, commission, omission, any sin that I do, I am disconnecting from God. And in a sense, it's worse than than idolatry. Because idolatry, he defined as ego. A sense of independence from God. Not a rebellion against God. The moment you transgress, you violate a, a, a uh, prohibition, one of the 365 don'ts, you not only are acting egotistical, you're actually rebelling against God. You're doing something that even, even the idol wouldn't do. The idol acknowledges God, but the idol senses, has a sense of self, and that's idolatry. And not only are you, do you have a sense of self, you're actually rebelling against God. You're denying that God not only creates the world, that God is in charge of the world. How can you deny God? It's like the body rebelling against the soul. You want to move your hand and the body says, no, I refuse to move my hand. That's a sign of illness. So that's worse than idolatry. So if a Jew is ready to give up his life rather than than commit idolatry, bow down to the idol. Because our connection is so deep is so profound. It touches our very core and essence that it's simply not an option for a Jew to deny his Jewishness and to disconnect himself from God. The truth is, every time you sin, you're disconnecting from God. It's worse than idolatry. So in truth, you should be ready to give up your life rather than sin. Why don't we? And the answer is, that's what the Talmud means. That are person doesn't sin unless he has a spirit of folly. Because the truth is, it's an insanity. Sin is an insanity. It makes no sense. If being Jewish means so much to you, that you're ready to die for being Jewish, if you're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice, we love life, and yet you're ready to give up your life in a moment, without a moment's hesitation, if it's a question of denying your Jewishness, bowing down to the idol then how much more so you should be ready to give up your life rather than violate the prohibition, something that the Torah prohibits. How can I rebel and go against the will of the Torah, go, go against the will of God? So it's a moment of insanity because we make a distinction. We, we say to ourselves, well, listen, idolatry, God forbid, I'm not going to bow down to the idol. But this is a prohibition. I'm still a good Jew at heart, still a good person, I'm still a good Jew. 
So I violated this prohibition. It's not just a minor prohibition. But this distinction between minor and major is also, it's, it's insanity. It makes no sense. What? There is no real difference. It doesn't matter. Yes, it's true. This is major and this is minor. After the fact, after you've sinned, there is a difference between a major sin and a minor sin. It's like, it's like what kind of scar did you create? A major scar or a minor scar? But the overriding question is, am I connected or am I not connected? And if I'm ready to give up my life rather than be, than be disconnected, so then there really, really there is no difference. I should, be ra- I should be ready to give up my life rather than commit the slightest transgression. Because the question is, did I do God's will or not? Am I connected or am I not connected? How can I rebel against God? And the only reason we sin is because it's insanity. Insanity overtakes us. And we start making these foolish distinctions. Well, this is only a minor sin and this is a major sin. So he says, based on, based on this explanation, now we understand what Moshe meant. This, then, is the meaning of the verse, for this thing is very near to you, to observe the Torah and its commandments out of love and fear of God. For at any time and moment a person is capable and free to rid himself of the spirit of folly, which renders him insensitive to the separation between himself and God caused by sin, and the forgetfulness that he has a love of God by virtue of which he desires to unite with him through the fulfillment of the mitzvot. You just have to remind yourself. Remove this insanity. And remind yourself that how can I disconnect? How can I be disconnected? If I'm ready to die, make the ultimate sacrifice, surely I can make a minor sacrifice. And I can forgo whatever urge or instinct or pleasure, imaginary pleasure I think I may have by violating the, this transgression. I can sacrifice myself. I can make that sacrifice. And also I can remove the sense of forgetfulness because when a Jew remembers that being connected with God, this is the core and essence of my being. This is the deepest motivating, driving force behind me. This is who I am. This is the most natural thing in the world for me. This is my true nature, my genuine nature. Then you're motivated to actively do a mitzvah. Then you want to connect with God. How do you connect with God? By doing a mitzvah. Then you you can't get enough. And you do the mitzvah. And you do each mitzvah in a beautiful way. In a heartfelt way. And you, you don't just do the bare minimum. You do the mitzvah in a beautiful way. So it's only because we forget. We forget that we have this connection. We forget who we are. And we forget who, what our real nature is. And this is the human condition. The human condition is that we're not in touch with ourselves. Most people, it's safe to say, most people are not in touch with themselves. Most people sleepwalk through life. In the moment of truth, you discover who you are. Some mad scientist blew up the hydrogen bomb tomorrow, and he knew we had 24 hours left to live, we would discover who we really are. And it probably has nothing to do with the person that we thought we were. And perhaps for years, for decades. In the moment of truth, you discover what really matters to you. What your real priorities are, who you really are, what you really care about. And many times it has nothing to do with who you think you are. Things that you want to ten was the most important thing in the world. And you had no time for anything else, no time and energy. At the end of the day, it's meaningless to you. Who cares? When you have 24 hours left to live, it means nothing. And things you had no time for, this is the most important thing. So what does that mean? That means that we sleepwalk through life. We're not in touch with our real selves. So all a person has to do is really to remember, to wake yourself up. It's just to wake up and to remember. Let me remember, what am I really all about? Who am I really? And how do I know what I'm all about? The proof is in the pudding. In a moment of truth, you discover who you really are and what you're really all about. So all you need is to remind yourself. And that's something that everyone is capable of doing. There's no one who's not capable of doing. Anyone who has a mind, who has a brain, who can think and just realize and just become aware and just focus on it for a moment. Well, who am I? What is my true nature? What, is, what are my priorities? And once you realize that your nature, that being Jewish is the core and essence of your being, your connection to God, your relationship to God is the essence of who you are, and you're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice, that's who you truly are, genuinely are. 
then the only logical conclusion is to lead a life that's consistent with that. Because that's my nature. It dramatically changes your whole view on, on Yiddishkeit. This is not about organized religion, rituals, customs. This is your core. This is your essence. It's the most natural thing in the world. Every time you do a mitzvah, it resonates within you. It, you connect with it. It's a connection. It's a link. Something very real happens. You're cons- being consistent with the most deepest part inside of you. And only such a person is a free person. Who's a free person? Who's a liberated person? A person who can, who's free to live as he pleases? That's not a free person. That's an addict. That's a slave. That's not a free person. You know who a free person is? Rabbi say in Ethics of Our Fathers, whoever follows the Torah is a free person. It's interesting, there's an expression in Yiddish. Someone who's not, who's not observant, you say he's, he's a freier person, he's a free person. But the person who lives an observant life has the yoke of heaven. It's not free, but the truth is it's just the opposite. The person who lives as he pleases is the person who's not free. He's a slave. He's not in touch with himself. You know who a free person is? The person who's engaged in the Torah, he's a free person because he's in touch with himself. Freedom is when you're actual, when you're able to realize your potential, when your actual is a reflection of your potential. That's a free person. Of course it's effort. Of course it's hard work. But it's, it's rewarding work because you're being true to yourself. There's nothing more rewarding than being, than being true to yourself. The athlete who has to lead a very disciplined life and then so gracefully, you know, you see him on the court and seems so effortless and so graceful because you don't see the hours and the, the discipline that they put into their, their craft. But that's a freedom because he freed himself to, he realized his potential. He had a talent and he's able to realize his potential. And the same is with every area. Any person who has a talent, in order to develop that talent, takes tremendous effort and discipline. But that's a free person. A free person is not someone who, who's free to do anything. That, that's not freedom. That's slavery. That's addiction. A genuinely free person is someone who's able to really be in touch with himself. Who's able to truly actualize everything, everything that's going on inside of himself. So once a Jew realizes that being Jewish means having a relationship with God, a vibrant, dynamic live relationship with God that's so deep that's so alive that's so meaningful you're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice and that's my truth that's my nature so once you realize that then the only possible result is that I should live a life that's consistent with it and only then am I a free person and only then am I a satisfied and happy person and a realized person so it dramatically shifts and changes how you look at, at, it's not religion, organized religion and rituals and customs. This is alive. Judaism comes alive. So not only do you do the mitzvah, but bilvavcha with your heart. You do it with your heart. You're into it. You love it. It resonates with you. You look forward. It becomes a joyous, vibrant, passionate part of your daily life, woven into the fabric of your being. And this is something that's near and dear to each and every Jew. There's no difference between the tzaddik, the righteous one, the saint. Each and every one without exception. Because this is your true nature. The good news is we're not who we think we are. Thank God. There's so much more to us. There's so much depth to us. That's hidden. That's deep down. And the Torah gives us the ability to tap into that richness. To expose, to reveal that richness. To connect with that richness. And once you make that connection, then your Judaism comes alive. Then every time you do a mitzvah, you do it with enthusiasm. And the same vice versa. When you stay away from doing something wrong, also you do it with enthusiasm. You're repulsed by anything that can disconnect you or create a dissonance or disharmony within yourself. Why unplug? Why disconnect yourself from your core, from your truth, from your nature? This is your nature. So instead of going through life and looking at, looking at, at Judaism as a burden, or morality and ethics as a burden, as some external um, 
structure that's superimposed upon you, and you're conforming to something that's so unnatural, on the contrary, it's when you don't live the Torah mitzvah that you're doing that you're acting unnaturally. That's so unnatural. When a person lives a free life, you do as you please and follow every urge and follow every instinct. That's what's so unnatural. Because that's the most that's a super, your superficial nature. But your genuine, your true nature, your genuine nature. When you do the right thing, as difficult as it is, when you do the right thing, that is the most natural thing in the world. And once that clicks inside of you, once you make that connection, once you realize that, it dramatically changes everything. Not that you have to recreate yourself and become a new person reborn again. You don't have to recreate yourself. You don't have to be reborn again. You just have to remove the dust. Blow away the dust. Blow away the dirt. And just reveal the gem that's there. Once you realize that you have a gem, every time you're doing a mitzvah, once you realize how precious it is, and how profound it is, then you do it with enthusiasm. And it feels natural. So ironically, by overcoming and making a sacrifice and overcoming your urge or your instinct, that feels the most natural. No one ever regretted doing the right thing. It takes discipline, it takes strength, it takes awareness. But once you do it and you overcome it, you feel like a million dollars. You sleep like a baby at night. When you succumb to your urges and your instincts and you just follow the path of least resistance and you just follow your superficial nature... The siren inside of you, at the end of the day, you feel empty, hollow, shallow. You feel guilt-ridden. doesn't feel natural. doesn't feel wholesome. It makes you sick inside. Spiritually, psychologically, and even physically. Ultimately, even physically. So now we understand what Moshe is saying. Each and every one of us has the ability to remove this insanity, to remove this forgetfulness, and to wake up, and to realize and connect, and realize what, what this is all about, what Judaism is all about. It's our nature. It's the most natural thing in the world for each and every Jew. Not only for the saint and for the righteous one, and for the Baal Shem Tov and for, for the Moses of the world, and for the Isaiahs of the world, and the Maimonides of the world, and the, the, the Rebbe's of the world. Each and every Jew without a single exception. It's the most natural, instinctive thing. Because this is a truth that we know in our gut. We forget. But then, it's like you have a moment of recognition. When you wake up, you have a moment of recognition. Yes, of course, I always knew this. It's a truth that you always know. It's an eternal truth that we know deep down in our gut, in our kishkes. And then it just, we just have to allow it to emerge and serve. And it changes your life. And this becomes the foundation of Torah and Mitzvah. Because if a person views the Torah and Mitzvah as something that's alien and foreign and distant, and I'm doing it just to get a share in the world to come, so I'm going <laughs> I, I'm to... I agree to make myself miserable for the 120 years that I live because it's all for the, for the share in the world to come. So 120 years of misery for eternity sounds like a good deal. You missed the whole point. You missed the whole point. 120 years of misery. Misery. Following the Torah and Mitzvah is misery. Moshe is saying it's karev, it's close to you. You do it lovingly, passionately, joyfully. With excitement, enthusiasm, misery. This is your true nature. So it totally transforms. This is not only, this is the Alter Rebbe is even talking to a Jew who's already committed, who's observant. But it's soulless and it's joyless and it's lifeless and it's, 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 it's a life of misery. But he's sacrificing 120 years of misery for, you know, it's a trade-off <laughs> for, for eternity, eternal pleasure. The Rebbe says nothing. You're, miss, you're missing the whole point. God forbid, it's not misery. This is joy. It's natural. To be Jewish is natural. It's when we do the wrong thing. That's misery. That's not our genuine nature. We have to recognize that's not our genuine nature. Not to follow the Torah, not to do the Torah, or to transgress and violate. 
prohibition, that is unnatural. To do the right thing is the most natural thing in the world. Joyful, natural. And this is something that each and every one of us could become aware of. And it will dramatically transform our lives. Make us into vibrant Jews. Joyful Jews. We have a live relationship with God. A living relationship. With a living God. If you want to continue, he's always able to remember. He is always able to remember and arouse his love of the one God that is certainly undoubtedly latent in his heart, since everyone, even the most hardened sinner, is endowed with this inborn love. This is the meaning of, quote, in your heart, end quote, i.e., that everyone can serve God out of love, which is an emotion of the heart. Yet love of God by itself is insufficient. One needs also a fear of God to guard against violating the prohibitive commandments. Therefore, the Alter Rebbe continues, This love carries with it also fear, that is, the dread of being separated on any account from God's unity and oneness, even if it means sacrificing his life so as not to be separated from him, he will do so, without any reason or logic, but purely out of one's divine nature. So you have such a strong, intense connection with God, that you love God, that brings with it, at the same time, that you're afraid to be disconnected from God. You'll avoid anything that could diminish this relationship, or that can harm this relationship, or create a dissonance. And therefore, you can run away from doing anything that, that, um, that can disconnect you from God. By doing a sin and rebelling against God, and rebelling against His will, you're you're being unfaithful to this relationship. And therefore you, you run away from it. You dread being disconnected from God. So the two go hand in hand. The love and the fear are two sides of the same coin. Continue. As illustrated in chapter 19 by the analogy of the flame of a candle, which intrinsically seeks to unite with its source, the soul instinctively seeks to unite with its divine source. Because of this nature, it recoils in fear from anything that may sever its connection with God, even at the cost of life itself. Surely, then, it is far easier to subdue one's appetites, since this entails much lighter suffering than death, which he would willingly endure so as not to be torn away from God. Mastering his evil inclination is easier, both in the category of, quote, turning away from evil, end quote, and the category of, quote, doing good, end quote, i.e., refraining from sin and observing the positive commandments respectively. To be specific, even when it concerns a minor rabbinic prohibition, one can easily master his evil inclination so as not to transgress God's will, since at the time that he does the forbidden act, he thereby becomes separated from God's unity just as much as through actual idolatry, as explained in the previous chapter. It follows, therefore, that he ought to display the same strength in resisting the temptation for such a sin as he would display, even to the point of sacrificing his life, in rejecting idolatry, since this sin, too, separates him from God. There would appear to be a difference, however, between idolatry and the minor sin with which we are dealing. With idolatry, the sinner remains separated from God even after the idolatrous act, as explained in the previous chapter. Whereas with a minor sin, the separation lasts only as long as the sinful act itself. The Alter Rebbe refutes this argument in the next paragraph by stating that in the case of idolatry, too, there is a means of ensuring that the separation from God brought on thereby end immediately after the act. That method is teshuva, repentance. Yet, despite the fact that this resource is available to him, a Jew would rather be killed than practice idolatry, for he cannot accept even a momentary separation from God. He may now apply the same consideration 
to refraining from even a minor sin, since it too imposes upon him a separation from God, albeit a momentary one. You may think to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. If in the case of idolatry, there, clearly I'm giving up the relationship. It's like a question of being unfaithful. It's like asking in a marriage one spouse to be unfaithful. Clearly, in the case of idolatry, you denied your God. You denied your Jewishness. It's the ultimate sin. Versus if I do something minor. How can you compare something minor to something major? As he explained earlier, there is a distinction between minor and major. After the sin, a major sin, you create a, a, a deep scar. You need a more intense teshuva to make amends to remove the scar. A small sin, a minor sin, you made a minor mess. So after the fact, there are distinctions. So maybe a person will think to himself, how can you compare? In the case of idolatry, clearly I'm severing the relationship. It's a, it's a case of being unfaithful. A minor sin. Okay. Okay. My wife asked me to take out the garbage and I didn't. So if I did it, it's not, it's not that being unfaithful. It's the end of the marriage. It's all over. How can you compare? You know, if you have an affair, that's, that's the end of the, you know, that's being unfaithful. But doing a minor thing, how can you compare? So maybe in the case of idolatry, which is equivalent of being unfaithful, yes, I would rather die. The marriage means so much to me, I'm not going to sever the marriage. But in the case of a minor sin, I don't feel I'm suffering the marriage. It's not ideal. If I love my wife, I love my spouse. I should do everything, major, minor, doesn't matter. But nevertheless, it's not the end of the marriage. And we're not even, not even running to a marriage counselor. It's not the end of the world. I mean, it's, not, it's not a major thing. So the Rebbe is now going to dispel that notion. He says, no, that's, that's a false comparison. Why? Because he's going to explain, even in the case of idolatry, which is like being unfaithful, which is like uh, having an affair. There are marriages that have survived that too. We have a concept of teshuva. You can always repent. There are marriages that are so bad off that you thought it's hopeless, and then miraculously they, they, they... they worked it out and they even achieved a much more intense level of love, a deeper level of love, and the marriage only became stronger as a result. They forgave each other and they discovered a new depth, a new fresh, fresh level of in, 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 in their relationship. So the truth is, no matter how much you sin, ultimately, there's always, there's always you can always make up. You can always mend. It doesn't mean you will, but there is a possibility. And nevertheless, it's very clear in your mind that if you had that choice, just be unfaithful, just for, just for a moment. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to destroy the marriage. Even though you have the possibility, who says it's going to destroy the marriage? Maybe eventually you can... But you don't make calculations. Why? Because it's a marriage. It's a relationship. I'm not thinking logically and rationally. Yes, maybe logically and rationally the marriage could survive this too. I can sever the relationship and then I can do tshuva and, and I can mend. It's a possibility. Logically and rationally, it's a possibility. But it's, it's a marriage. I can, how can I be unfaithful to my spouse? I don't want to do anything to be unfaithful, even though later on I can make up for it. I just don't want to. I can't. I simply can't do that. Period. So you see that the relationship is much deeper. It's not just a logic-based relationship, a rational calculated type of relationship. It's a relationship, it's a marriage, it's an end in itself. It's not, a, it's not a calculated type of relationship. Therefore, what if you're in touch with that marriage, and you're in touch with the level of a relationship, it's not a calculated relationship, it's an end in itself, it doesn't matter if a major or minor. Yes, it's not a question of being unfaithful, it's not a question of... of but to me, to do anything that can harm the marriage, do anything even in the slightest... It's simply not an option. How can I, when I have such a deep relationship, such a deep connection, how can I do something that will harm, 
harm the marriage. So again, it's not a calculation. It's not a rational, logical calculation. It's a marriage. It's an end in itself. It's so intimate. It's so deep. It's so profound. It touches my very core in essence that there are no calculations. And I would rather, I would rather give up that momentary pleasure rather than hurt the marriage or harm the marriage. What's the option? A momentary pleasure? A small little pleasure? Versus the status of my marriage? The meaning of my marriage relationship? There's no contest. The marriage always wins. So there is no distinction. All these distinctions between major and minor is part of the insanity. Because if you're really in touch with what's at stake, you don't make calculations. If you're in touch with the marriage, it's not a question of calculation. Well, I can, I can get away with this. If you're in touch with the marriage, and it's an end in itself, then you'll do anything that can strengthen the marriage, and you'll happily give up, sacrifice, any momentary pleasure you may, imaginary pleasure that you may think you may have, to strengthen the marriage. I'll give up. I'll forgo that pleasure, and, and not harm, not hurt the marriage. And that's what al is going to explain now. Now, Even with regard to idolatry, he can repent afterwards and thus assure himself of unity with God after the idol worship. Nevertheless, a Jew would give up his life rather than exercise this option. Yet one may argue that in reality this is no option at all. The Talmud states that when one sins because he relies on subsequent teshuva, God does not allow him to practice teshuva. Since he cannot rely on this, he must sacrifice his life so as not to remain permanently separated from God through idolatry. With a minor sin, however, the separation from God that it causes is in any case temporary, even without recourse to tshuva. We are thus once again left with our original question. How can it be said that the same fear of separation from God that motivates a Jew to sacrifice his life with regard to idolatry, can also motivate him to refrain from even a minor sin. The two cases are altogether different. The former causes a lasting separation, and the latter a momentary one. The Alter Rebbe answers this objection by clarifying the Talmudic statement on which it is based. The Talmud does not imply, he explains, that the sinner who relies on teshuva utterly loses his ability to repent but rather that the divine assistance usually granted to a penitent sinner is withheld from him. Thus, one could, after all, submit to coercion and practice idolatry and rely on tshuva to save him from a lasting separation from God, yet no Jew would take advantage of this resource. The love of God innate in every Jew dictates that he sacrifice his life rather than bear the temporary separation caused by idolatry. So he's saying that even in the case of idolatry, where, you, where it's like having an affair and you're totally severing your Jewish connection and it's like denying God so brazenly and so openly, you know, every Jew will cringe. And I can't go there. No matter how, how terrible I am, no matter how disconnected I am, I'm a Jew. I'm a good Jew at heart. I can't do this. I'm a Jew. I'd rather die than, than have an affair, than deny my relationship, deny my marriage to God. But, the question is, why? If you think about it, rationally, you can have an affair and, and you, know, you can make up for it. But then he says, although you may argue it's not so simple, because the Talmud says, if a person sins, and he says to himself, I'm sinning. You know why I'm sinning? I'll sin today, and eventually I'll do tshuva. Eventually I'll do tshuva. I'll start my diet after I have this, this delicious piece of cake. The Talmud says it doesn't work. Such a person will not be given the opportunity to do tshuva. Will not be given the opportunity to do tshuva. So, therefore, you can say, that maybe it's a good calculation. Yes, it's true. I can have an affair and yet do teshuva. But since that's the reason I'm having the affair, that's the reason I'm sinning because I'm thinking to myself, you know, I can always make up for it later. 
I can always make up and do Teshuvah, then the Talmud promises that you won't, the Torah promises that you won't be given the chance to do Teshuvah. So therefore you know that if you sin, you're severing your relationship forever. You can't rely and depend, you know, I'll sin, I'll have an affair, and I'll make up for it later. And yes, you could make up for it later. But since it's the sin that's causing you, it's, it's the Teshuvah, the idea, the thought that later on I can make up for it, that's what's causing you to sin. In such a case, in such an instance, you will never have the opportunity to do Teshuvah. Therefore, that fear, that sin is going to be final because you can never do Teshuvah. So he explains, this is all in the, in the parentheses. So he explains it's not so. The Talmud doesn't mean you cannot do Teshuvah. Even in that case, when a person sinned only because he relied on his teshuva. So it's the teshuva that caused him to sin because he felt relaxed. No big deal. I'll sin and I can make up for it later. The Talmud doesn't mean he cannot do teshuva. Let's not look carefully in the wording of the Talmud. The Talmud says he won't be given the opportunity to do teshuva. It becomes very difficult for him to do teshuva because he's relaxed. And he's relaxed about it. And he thinks, you know, I'll do it tomorrow. I can always take care of it later. He's not worried. But what if a person pushes himself and nevertheless does the shuva? Then shuva helps in anything. There's nothing in the world that shuva doesn't help. No matter how far the relationship has got, you can always make amends. And this is the mystery of the shuva. This is of repentance. This is the the divine miracle of repentance, as Alter Rebbe uses the analogy elsewhere, he says it's like, you know, we can transplant a heart, we can transplant a, a, an arm that's severed, you can, you, can, you can transplant, you can sew together, sew back. But once the head is severed, you can't, you can't put the head back. It's all over. Life is over. Teshuvah is the equivalent of severing a head, and yet miraculously... We can't do it physically. But in the spiritual sense, when you spiritually sever off your head, when you do a sin that the Torah says you've cut yourself off from your people, you've severed yourself off from the people, it's all cut off. Nevertheless, teshuva helps on anything. You can reattach the head. In a spiritual surgery, you can reattach the head, no matter how far you've gone. So even when the Torah says that teshuva doesn't help, or we don't give you the opportunity to do, to, to do teshuva, or you, you don't give yourself the opportunity to do teshuva, but if you push yourself and you do teshuva, nevertheless, teshuva helps in everything. You can mend everything. There's nothing, as long as you're breathing, as long as you're alive, there's nothing in the world that teshuva can help. So you can always make amends. You can always re- reconnect. You can always restore the marriage. You can always restore the relationship. So therefore, logically, a person may say to himself, Why not? I'll bow down to the idol. Why shouldn't I bow down to Yes, it's in a fear. Yes, it's disrupting and severing the marriage. But it's not final. I can always do teshuva. Why should I throw my life away? I'm a young person. There's so much Torah that I can do. I can worship God for the next 70, 80 years. Why would I throw my life away? We love life. Just so that I shouldn't bow down to the idol for a moment, for a split second. And anyway, it's all external and superficial. I'll sin. I'll have the affair. And then I'll make amends. I'll do teshuvah. I'll make up for it. Yes, it won't be easy, but I'll push myself. Yes, it's very difficult, but I'll do it. And nevertheless, not a single Jew makes that calculation. Why? Because it's a marriage. It's simply not an option. It's not an option. I'm not thinking what's going to happen later, tomorrow. Right now, how can I sever my connection? How can I have an affair? How can I deny my marriage? How can I deny my relationship? How can I deny who I am? My essence. This is who I am. It's not an option. Period. Not for a moment, not for a split second, not externally, superficially, for appearance sake. It's simply, simply not an option. So Dr. Rebbe brings this parenthetically. And he brings a concept if a person sins and he says, I sin in order that I will do teshuvah, I'll do teshuvah later, it's not going to work. It's a very dangerous, dangerous road that the person is taking. It's a slippery path because the person is completely relaxed. 
the truth is, the only time that exists for us, in a real sense, is now. They did a study. People who quit smoking. Those who kept off the cigarette the day they made a decision to quit smoking were ten times as likely to stay off the cigarette. Those who broke their commitment during the first 24 hours were ten times as likely to to revert, not to stay with their commitment. Why? Because the truth is, the only time that exists is now. So a person who's thinking in terms of now, today, I made a decision, a commitment to stay off the cigarette, Now, today, these 24 hours, I'm off the cigarette. What's tomorrow? Tomorrow is also today. Tomorrow becomes today. So your frame of reference is always now, today. One day at a time. Today, I'm not going to smoke. A person who quit, and yet he broke it within 24 hours, means it's abstract. Oh, tomorrow, I'll I'll start the diet after the cake. I'll start it tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. There's no such thing as tomorrow. The only time that exists is now. Tomorrow becomes now. So it's always in the future. You know? it says it's in the future and always will be. You know? it, it, it's not real. There's no sense of reality. So the truth is, the only sense of reality is now, the eternal now. There's no tomorrow. So yes, logically and rationally, it may make sense in an abstract way. But in a real way, there's no such thing. How can I be unfaithful now? It's not an option. I don't care what my options are. Yes, I have an option. I can sever my head, have an affair, and, and, and work it out later. It's simply not an option. How can I deny my core, my essence? How can I deny my relationship? How can I sever this relationship? This relationship is now. It's real. It's eternal. There's no... It's simply not an option. And therefore, since the only sense that we have is now, the eternal now. And this relationship is so alive and dynamic and vibrant and real. It's a live wire. And for the sa- therefore, for the same reason I will not commit adultery, for the same reason I will not have an affair, for the same reason I cannot sever this relationship, for that same reason I cannot even transgress or violate a minor prohibition. For the same reason I'm ready to make the ultimate sacrifice and give up my life, for that same reason I'm ready for this moment, ready to give up, to make a small sacrifice, to sacrifice whatever pleasure, imaginary pleasure I thought I may have from doing the transgression, from violating the transgression, from doing something immoral, unethical. Whatever pleasure that may give me, I'm I'm ready to sacrifice. It's not worth it. I'm not going to give up my relationship just for this momentary pleasure. It's something that works. So therefore, any distinction between a minor sin and a major sin is insanity. To make any distinction is an act of insanity. There is no distinction. And therefore, a Jew is ready To be careful not to violate or, transpre- or transgress or trespass even the most minor prohibition that's written in the code of Jewish law. Biblical rabbinic Jewish custom it makes absolutely no difference. It makes no difference. And any distinction that we make is, a, is an act of folly. It's absurd. It means you're totally out of touch. Totally disconnected. Don't realize what's at stake. That we have a real relationship with God. It's not a question of scoring points. Of It's a marriage. It's alive. It's real. Continue. Although the Talmud states, it's the middle of 332. Although the Talmud states that he who says I will sin and repent is not given an opportunity to do so, yet this means merely that God does not aid such a sinner granting him the auspicious occasion to repent. Generally, God grants one who wishes to repent the necessary power and the opportune moment to realize his good intentions. However, where one's reliance on teshuva formed the basis for his sin, 
he has lent neither the strength nor the opportunity. If, however, he seizes the opportunity himself and he repents, nothing can stand in the way of repentance. Thus, even in the case of idolatry, one could conceivably rely on tshuva to prevent a lasting separation from God. Nevertheless, every Jew is prepared and ready to suffer martyrdom for the sanctification of God's name and will not perform an idolatrous act, for example, quote, to bow down before an idol, end quote, even temporarily with the intention of repenting afterwards, indicating that the fear of even a temporary separation from God is sufficient motivation for self-sacrifice. This is because of the divine light which is clothed in his soul, as explained above, which does not come within the realm of time at all, but transcends time. And therefore, in relation to this light, every action is eternal. Furthermore, as is known, this divine light rules and dominates time. Not only is it not governed by the laws of time, but on the contrary, it governs them. So the light, this connection that we have, it really transcends transcends all rational arguments, any sense of time and space. It's, it's an eternal moment. It's an eternal connection. And therefore, even if it's for a moment, it, it's an eternal moment. And it's not a possibility. It's simply not an option to be disconnected from God. It's not a question of, you know, well, it's only for a moment, and a moment later I can make up for it. Even a moment is a moment too long. This, firstly, it's an eternal moment. And the, the uh, sense of time, even the slightest, the slightest moment in time, has, has meaning. If it can affect my relationship, it can affect my marriage, it can affect my relationship with God, then that moment, that slight moment, become, becomes very momentous and becomes very weighty and becomes very meaningful. It's not, so what? It's a slight moment. It doesn't matter. The slightest moment, the slightest movement, but it's, it, it becomes weighty. How can I do anything that goes contrary to that inner, inner connection that I have? How can I be unfaithful? And that's simply not an option. That's simply not an option. So when the person is external, external, everything is calculated. Everything is time. We live in a framework of time and space. So you make a calculation. This is major, this is minor, this is just a moment. And, I, and even if it's a terrible sin, I can always make up, for it, make up for it later. But once you touch a place that transcends our whole frame of reference, transcends our whole frame of reference of time and space, it's not calculated. It's not about ego. It's an end in itself. It's, it's, it's a live relationship. Then it's eternal. There's no, it's not a question of a moment. Yes, maybe I could make up for it later, but it's just not a question. How can I sever my head? It's just simply not an option. And even the slightest moment carries weight, carries tremendous weight. If I do something wrong, it carries tremendous How can I, even for a slight moment, how can I do something wrong? How can I be on the wrong side of the equation? How can I disconnect? How can I violate, trespass, transgress? And abuse something so special, something that's so deep and so profound and so genuine and so authentic and so real. It's simply not an option. And therefore, therefore, just like a Jew would not worship idols, even for a split second, even though you can make amends for it, so too a Jew could not sin. Simply can't sin. But the proof is, <laughs> we do. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the strange part. That's the question. As the Zohar says, says in the Torah, a, a soul that will sin. The, Torah, the question the Zohar make, puts a big question mark in. Nefesh kisech the tevah. It's a question mark. How can a person sin? It's only, as the Talmud says, it's a moment of insanity. It's a, it's a crime of passion, a crime of insanity. You're insane. You can't. It goes against your nature. Could an animal jump into fire? How can you sin? How can you jump into fire? How can you self-destruct like that? How can you harm yourself? It's just a moment of insanity. You become completely oblivious to reality, to your reality, to your truth. 
And it's like, it's like, it's like a, a dibuk took possession of you. It's not the real you. As Jackie Mason says, it's not the real you. You have this alien voice speaking inside of you. When a Jew sins, it's not, it's not the real you. It's environment, circumstances, evil inclination, but it's not you. And this is reflected in Allah. Allah states, in the times when the Jewish court had power, if a Kohen married a divorced woman, a Kohen is not allowed to marry a divorced woman, the Jewish court would force him to give a divorce, but not allow him to live in sin. And the question is, Maimonides poses the question, we know in the laws of divorce that it has to be done willingly. It's not done willingly, it's not worth the paper it's written on. So how can the Jewish court force the Kohen to give the divorce when he's yelling and screaming, but I love her. And I'm giving a divorce because you're beating me, I have no choice. You're forcing me. It feels unnatural. I Naturally, I love her and I want to live with her. What does the Torah say? What does my man, how's my man in his answer? It's not true. We look him in the eye and we say, you're lying. Deep down, you want to do the right thing. You don't know who, you don't, you're not in touch with yourself. When you say, I agree to divorce, that's the real you. That's your true voice speaking. It's the other part that you, that you say, no, I want to be natural, I want to be a natural, I want to be a genuine bum. It feels so natural. That's the lie. That's not the real you. That's your external superficial nature. But when you do the right thing, that's your genuine nature. That's your authentic thing. That's who you are. That's your reality. And if you're in touch with that reality, to sit is not an option. And it's a big surprise, a big question mark. How is it even possible for us to sit? And the answer is that we're, we're, we're asleep. We're so out of touch with ourselves. It's insanity. It's a frightening thought how, how, in touch, how out of touch we are with ourselves. The proof is in the moment of truth. The truth comes out. And we discover that our inner selves is the exact opposite of, of who we thought we were. So that's the human condition. It's called immaturity. We're totally out of touch with ourselves. So thank God we have a Torah. And the Torah gives us like a... If we're able to take a spiritual x-ray of our innermost being. That's the Torah. The Torah is a, is a spiritual x-ray of who we are. The Torah is not imposing upon us a lifestyle when the Torah tells a Jew to, not to do something. The Torah is not imposing upon us to act unnaturally. But I want to be a genuine bum. It feels so natural. Why should I discipline myself and try to put myself into a straitjacket and try, don't do this and don't do that. All these artificial societal prohibitions. The answer is it's not artificial, it's not societal. It's divine. It, this is your nature. This is who you really are. When the Torah says don't do something, the Torah is looking us in the eye and telling us deep down you don't want to do this. And if you convince yourself otherwise, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. It's simply not true. Deep down you want to do the right thing. Only God, our Creator, has the ability to look us in the eye and tell us point blank, you're lying. You're deceiving yourself. What you, the way you're behaving is so unnatural. It's self-destructive and it's so unnatural. It's so alien. It's so foreign from your true nature, from who you really are. You're violating yourself. You're violently going against your nature. When you do the Torah, you do the right thing. It's soothing. It's genuine. It's natural. It's real. And the proof is, we're here 3,800 years later. Never left the front page. Every one of us, our ancestors for thousands of years, faithfully kept to the Torah and the mitzvot, 613 mitzvot. This is the proof to what Alter Rebbe is saying. This is genuine. This is authentic. This is natural. It's everything else that's unnatural. And that's ephemeral. And it's... It's just meaningless and just a fad and a phase and passing. This is eternal. This is reality.
eternally, eternity. This is reality. This is, this is our genuine nature. And therefore, to unplug, to disconnect, even for a split second, even for a moment, it's simply not an option. And all the calculations in the world, well, it's, it's not being unfaithful, it's just a minor thing. It's just for the moment, I'll do trivial later. It means nothing. This is not religion. This is not something that's based on calculation. We're talking our essence. We're talking about something eternal, divine, something real, genuine. It completely transcends time, space, rational calculation. It touches our very being, our very essence. And to be disconnected is, is, is simply not an option. And next week we're going to learn. Till now you discussed avoiding from transgressing, negative prohibition. Next week he's going to learn how this is a motivation to do the mitzvah. And to do the mitzvah with tremendous enthusiasm. And tremendous strength and force and power. To be continued.